Welcome to the February 2016 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden, Editor-in-Chief of JPEN and the Human Nutrition Endowed Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana. I'm very pleased today to be here with Drs. Taylor, Martindale, and McClave. You are likely familiar with them, Dr. Beth Taylor, a nutrition support specialist at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Dr. Bob Martindale, Chief of the Division of General Surgery, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, and Dr. Steve McClave, Department of Gastroenterology, University Medical Associates in Louisville. They're here to talk to us about the guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support therapy in the adult critically ill patient. This is a joint venture between the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Welcome to all three of you. You know it's been nearly seven years since the 2009 critical care guidelines were published by you and others. So these guidelines have been highly anticipated. What took so long? I think that we originally started years ago with the first guidelines in the 2001, and we finally got those done in 2009. But it literally took seven to nine years. And so the next time we said we should redo these every five years. And of course, our plan was five years. It just this year we've decided that we've got a lot more depth. We had a lot more transparency. We had a lot more data referencing. And frankly, in nutrition support, we've got a lot more human data. I think we began in earnest in January 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And and it took almost two full years to enter all the studies, the randomized controlled trials, in the electronic format. We started with the harmonization process with the Canadian group, Darren Hyland, Rupinder Dahlwall. We incorporated their database. We added a, a large number of RCTs to that, and on every one of those randomized controlled trials, we had two data abstraction forms that would be completed, and then all that would be entered into the electronic record. RevMan was a software we used. And then after two years, we began writing in earnest in January of 2014. And Beth, I think if you correct me, uh, we wrote steadily for 12 months before we had a final version of the paper. Yeah, the full committee. The other thing is we really increased our transparency and wanted to make sure even though committee members wrote specific sections, the entire committee reviewed every section and was given time to voice any concerns anonymously. We did a lot of voting and anonymous feedback, so everyone felt free to say what they thought about certain sections, and we had kind of a lot of back and forth, but that process is what allowed us to get such great consensus on these recommendations. Very good. So your process was just a lot more stringent and systematic this time, which should only have us feel that much more confident about these guidelines. So what's new? Have there been any turnabouts in the recommendations, any shifts from the previous guidelines? One of the ones that I think that will probably have a lot of 
nurses uh, biting their fingernails will probably be the one where we recommend that you don't check gastric residual volumes. So I see that as being a big bedside practice change for a lot of places. So I think that might cause a little bit of unrest as people try to move toward that practice. Another place we found that we made major changes was in the issue related to lipids. And we felt for a long time, and some of you may remember, last time got an A recommendation for Oxipa and the immune-modulating lipid ARDS formula sort of thing. And we felt that this time there was enough controversial data, they actually withdrew that A grading and did not make a major recommendation because the data was so controversial. So that was a major change from an A recommendation for uh, ARDS formula to basically no recommendation. Another new change, Kelly, was trying to resolve all this information on trophic and permissive feeding and how this fits with the nutritionist idea that we need to get to go quickly and feed everybody adequately. And what it comes down to is focusing on the concept of nutritional risk. Nutritional risk is determined both by poor nutritional status and disease severity. And if a patient is low risk, then it's fine to use trophic or full feeds. In patients that are moderately critically ill, such as patients with ALI or ARDS, um, trophic or full feeds in that first week is going to yield the same outcome. But being able to identify the patient at high nutritional risk, that's the group where we're not sure that trophic feeding is good in the long term. That's a group that you want to say, we need to get to goal sooner. This is a group we need to push to goal. And the only thing we couldn't answer in the guidelines was, do we need to reach the goal by day two, day four, day seven, sometime in the first week? But those people, you need to push harder. For example, uh, sepsis. I mean, that was an area which was really gray because some people would say we should get to go as soon as possible. Others say it's okay to treat the septic patient just like any other IC patient. But I think there's some gray area there. Another change in recommendation also following the data as it became available, we had quite a few large trials, the MetaPlus, the Redox, that showed that we shouldn't be providing glutamine routinely to our ICU patients, so that was a change in recommendation as well. Now, there's some critics, though, who would say that these guidelines are already out of date because I believe the studies you included were all 2013 and before, right? Yes, that's an important perception that we need to clarify. We had a drop-dead date of December 31st, 2013, and we couldn't refer to any studies published after that date. That doesn't mean we weren't aware of the studies published after that date. So as we voted on all these and as we wrote the manuscript, we were aware of these studies. The Harvey Calories trial, VN versus PN, for example, that showed equal outcome in the first five days of hospitalization. We were aware of that study. We were aware of a, of a Python study in pancreatitis where early oral feeding, on-demand oral feeding had the same outcome as, as tube feeding within 24 hours. We were aware of these studies and we made sure that the guidelines were consistent with studies published after that date. We just couldn't refer to them. And the reason we couldn't refer to them was because if we added any one study in a particular section, then we were obligated to go back and update every section in the whole manuscript and we couldn't do that. At some point you have to say, this is the date and no further. But all of the guidelines, as those studies came out, these guidelines are in sync with those publications and will not be obsolete because of them. 
they were kind of positioned with those things in mind. So even when those studies are added to the database and we look to see if the signal changes, there would be very little change to our guidelines when they're released. Okay, so my take home on that is even if they had been included in all the scoring and systematic process, they were not going to be changing the recommendations that you had anyway. Correct. 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 A perfect example is, is our stand on use of parenteral nutrition. We are aware of the Harvey's trial in addition to the Heidegger trial and the Doig trials before that, that showed that really TPN can be delivered safely in an ICU setting now. We have better control of central line access. We have moderate glucose control. We have protocols in place to deliver it safely. And we went back at, at probably three different points in, in the guidelines and said that the difference in the route of feeding between enteral and parenteral is diminishing as PN is delivered in a more safe and efficacious manner. So again, we are qualifying the recommendations so that they fit with these studies that were published after the 2013 date. I think that's an appropriate way to handle it for the readers who are perhaps not familiar with those studies because they're relying on your group to have done this review for them, but also for those critics who are going to say, look, you didn't even realize it was there. You know, you, you put your recommendations in context of the, those newer data. In our rationale, we actually yeah. mentioned those studies, but we can't use them for data collection. So we mentioned the newer studies. Knowing that that's coming, we sort of set our rationale with the concept that we know these data is coming, but we can't really say it, otherwise we'd be here forever. And we would not be getting these guidelines done until 2020. <laughs> yes, and we'd be probably dead. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So I heard a rumor that there's a pediatric critical care guidelines committee in the works between FCCM and Aspen. What recommendations would all of you have for that group as they start their project? I think guidelines have been a seminal work, and I think they're laudable, but it has to be from a committee that works incredibly well together. It's got to be people that are amenable to change, but yet have difference of opinion. I think the importance is that people are able to express their opinion without being squashed, and we need to get enough breadth of the committee that you're going to get difference of opinions. You can't have one person pick a, picking a committee and just get their buddies that agree with them. They're yes men. You've got to have a difference of opinion. Otherwise, you really smooth over the rough parts, and you really need to discuss these rough parts. That is where a lot of our time was taken. We had conference calls routinely every single month. We had a lot of email back and forth where we could look at these different opinions, look at the data, and really make a decision that the whole group could agree with. And I think that was huge because we were representing all our colleagues out there, and we used all the different multidisciplinary approach to these guidelines. The other recommendation is I'd highly recommend a librarian. And yeah. I think SCCM is going to consider that. I hope Aspen supports it because it's a lot of work to get an accurate search. It's a lot to pull all these studies and do the data abstraction forms, et cetera, that we ask of the volunteers. So I think a lot of this could be done by a librarian. A couple things I would add to that. The electronic record, I'm using that term, Beth, I don't know if that's the best term, but having the 
data inspection forms for their RCTs all recorded and placed into the electronic record, being able to use the RevMan software to generate the grade tables and the meta-analyses. That's an important step, and to get that done makes it easier for subsequent revisions. The second thing I would recommend the pediatric committee is define the scope of the project carefully at the beginning. I think if we made one mistake in this manuscript is that we expanded the scope dramatically. We have all these new sections on surgical subspets, obesity, sepsis, expanded sections on pancreatitis, and we might have bitten off a little too much. So define the scope carefully at the beginning of the project. We were your basic overachievers, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. For our listeners, please do go to the February 2016 issue of JPEN and dig into the new critical care guidelines from SCCM and Aspen that are found within that issue. Congratulations, Drs. Taylor, Martindale, and McClave, to you and your colleagues for an outstanding contribution.